Last week was Easter Sunday, and it's not the Easter I hoped to have or planned for us to have, but I'm still grateful that we got to have it in the way we have it. We did have it, and, and this week we're going to continue in the letter that we started looking at last week, a New Testament letter written by one of Jesus' friends named Peter. Peter wrote two letters. We're going to look at the first one, and we're going to journey through that as we continue in this wilderness wandering of COVID-19. One of the things I want to tell you, whether you're a part of Grace Church or a part of Generation, uh, that is that we are actively brainstorming and working to figure out what our transition plan back into reality will be. I don't want to say I don't want to say back to normal because there is no going back. There really is only going forward. But we also know that the reality of the way this virus works, the way the reality our governing authorities are going to seek to lead us is that it will not be a light switch situation. It will not be one week we can't gather and one week we can. It will be a progression. And I think that's good because even for those of us, if the light switch did flip, if such a thing did happen, we'd be reticent to just jump back in. And so our teams are looking at how do we transition back in slowly? How do we roll into being back together uh, probably throughout the course of the summer? which is why, especially for those of you who go to Regen, if I can just speak very specifically to you for this moment, I really want to challenge you to be pressing into small group opportunities. Um, we uh, have advantages through some technology and being digital natives that others may not have that I want to invite you to continue to press into. Um, and if you happen to go to Grace Church, what a better time to be figuring out technology than now because we have to continue to press into this season. Uh, but at both locations, we're gonna be working on a transition plan that brings us back together over a period of weeks and maybe even months that honors what governing authorities are saying, that invites us back into community in a safe way um, in the midst of that new normal. It's not a going back, it's a going forward. Uh, and so we'll have to have new levels of courage and new levels of flexibility in this time for some time as we press into things ahead. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1. A few weeks ago when we entered this wilderness of coronavirus and COVID-19, um, we didn't know how long it would be. In fact, so many of the plans that we put together were based on a short period of time, a short period of time that is simply becoming longer. It's becoming longer, it's becoming increasingly difficult to bear. We aren't getting better at living life this way. We aren't finding a new normal. Instead, we are surviving, barely holding on, gripping onto what we can with white knuckles, hoping for survival. We are left with the burden of isolation, isolation that amplifies what is difficult and challenging and just plain painful. A few weeks ago, we entered this wilderness of COVID-19, and we didn't really know how long it was going to last. Our plan, uh, my plan as your pastor, was for something that would last only a few weeks, not a few months. And now as we're in the midst of this, a season that may begin to alleviate over a process over the next few weeks and few months, we're still finding this wilderness increasingly hard to bear. As, as I listen to you, as I have phone conversations with you, as we get text messages, we're finding that this is not a season of thriving. This is a season where we are white-knuckled, grabbing on in hope to survive. 
We aren't finding our way through this new normal. Instead, we're kind of just trying to make it through as we homeschool our kids and and end up on endless Zoom calls for our work. What we are left with in this season is the heavy burden of isolation, this isolation that just amplifies and increases whatever was going on before. And in the first few weeks of this wilderness, way back at the first few days, Steph kept saying over and over again, she said, this is just reminding me that this world is not my home. This world is not my home. And really nothing has made this truth clearer. Nothing has thrown this truth so sharply into contrast as has the season of COVID-19. This world is not my home. You see, when I put my faith in Jesus, when I place him at the very center of my life, I am transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of life. My, My citizenship changes. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. We become citizens of that kingdom. What Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. This world is not my home. That's what we're discovering in this season, in this wilderness of COVID-19. And this season of COVID-19 has the power to massage this truth into us in a fresh and, I pray, lasting way. And it's this reality, this idea that this world is not our home, it's this reality that the readers of First Peter we're coming to grips with in powerful ways even 2,000 years ago. We're going to be looking this morning at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 25, the second half of the chapter. But I want us just to pause and reflect again on verses 1 and 2 of the letter, which kind of introduces the content and context and what we're going to see. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, we're going to explore a little bit of the context, and we're going to see how even at the very center of this letter of 1 Peter is this truth. This world is not my home. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. The author of the letter identifies himself as Peter, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter is one of Jesus' closest friends, what the Gospels call one of the twelve. His rough, in his roughly three years of public ministry, Jesus spent at least half of his time investing in these twelve men. And of those 12, there were three that Jesus gave even more of his time and attention to, and Peter is one of those three. Peter's history with Jesus has its highs, and it certainly has its lows. It was Peter who walked on water and met Jesus on the waves. But it was also Peter who denied Jesus three times when Jesus needed him most. It was Peter whom Jesus named the rock on whom the church would be built. And yet it was also Peter who tried to bar Jesus from fulfilling his mission of crucifixion and resurrection. Peter is steeped in the grace and peace that he prays would be multiplied to his readers. 
readers in Roman provinces all over what we know as modern-day Turkey, readers that Peter calls elect exiles of the dispersion. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. In this turn of phrase, elect exiles of the dispersion, and when he mentions exile again in chapter 1, verse 17, Peter is using real historical events from the history of Israel, the history of the Old Testament people of God. He's using these real historical events and he's applying them spiritually to his non-Jewish readers to help them understand what is happening to them. At first glance, it looks like Peter is writing to Christians who are experiencing persecution. He speaks of a trial that his readers are facing in verses 6 and 7 in chapter 1. And in chapter 3 and in chapter 4 are some of the Bible's longest explorations of what it means to suffer as the people of God. But it turns out on closer reading and in reflection of history that Peter isn't yet speaking of outright persecution. Uh, Peter is writing in A.D. 62 or 63, which is right before the systematic, uh, institutionalized persecution of Christians begins under the Roman Emperor Nero. Peter writes this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those elect exiles in the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. The author of this letter identifies himself as Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. While Jesus did his earthly ministry, He had 12 men in whom he particularly invested. They were called the apostles. Uh, The apostles, the 12, as the gospels call them, got the vast majority of Jesus' time. In fact, scholars estimate that about half of Jesus' time was given to these 12 people. Jesus trained and discipled these apostles, but of those 12, there were three with whom Jesus was particularly close, that Jesus gave even more of his attention Peter is one of those three. Peter's history with Jesus has its highs and lows. It was Peter who walked out on the water to meet Jesus, standing on the sea. It was Peter who denied Jesus three times when Jesus needed him most. It was Peter that Jesus named the rock on whom Jesus would build his church. It was Peter who tried to bar Jesus from performing his earthly ministry of crucifixion and ascension and resurrection. Peter is steeped in the grace and peace that he prays over the readers of his letter, readers who are scattered in Ro- across the Roman province uh, that we would find in modern-day Turkey, readers whom Peter calls elect exiles of the dispersion. In this turn of phrase, and when he mentions exile again in chapter 1, verse 17, Peter is using real and historical events from the history of God's people, real and historical events from the history of God's people, and he is spiritually applying them, he is spiritually applying them to his non-Jewish readers. 
And at first glance, as you read this letter, it sounds like Peter is writing to Christians under intense persecution. Chapters 3 and 4 have some of the Bible's most extensive explanation of suffering in the Bible. And in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he speaks of a trial that they are undergoing. But reflecting a little bit more on what's happening historically in this letter, what we actually find is that the Christians that Peter's writing to aren't yet facing intense systematic and institutionalized persecution. That comes in AD 64 under the Roman Emperor Nero, who blames the burning of Rome on Christians living in that city. This, is, this letter, 1 Peter, is written in AD 62 or 63, just before that time. And so the suffering and trials that Peter is addressing, he's addressing this, his non-Jewish readers who were once pagans, have become converted by the preaching of the gospel. They have become participants in the way of Jesus. And when that happened, they were born again, and they woke up as citizens of heaven in a world now absolutely hostile to their beliefs, their lifestyle, and their Lord. And so what Peter is talking about in terms of these trials is not intense persecution faced by their, given to them by their neighbors. It's more this sense of this kind of low-grade fever of difficulty that comes with being a Christian in a world that does not have those values. These chapters on suffering in 3 and 4 then are almost prophetic, equipping the church to experience the persecution that they would experience starting in AD 64 and roughly for the next 200 years of Christianity. What happened to these new Christians, these new Christians that are scattered across some like 2,000 square miles, is that they woke up in a world that was now foreign to them. And so Peter calls them elect exiles of the dispersion, again borrowing events from Israel's past and applying them spiritually to non-Jewish Christians. In the Old Testament, the children of Israel were exiled from the land of the land of Israel as punishment for their sins, and this exile caused them to live as aliens in a foreign land in, in Babylon. This is why the NASB, New American Standard, translate the phrase "elect exiles" as those who reside as aliens. Or other translations call these Christians sojourners. It's not a literal reality. Many of the Christians that Peter is addressing have lived in their city their entire life. Instead, this is a spiritual sojourn. This is a spiritual alienation. It's a spiritual reality. These Christians, through their experience of the new birth, have come to realize that this world is not their home. They're coming to realize the very thing that we're realizing now. They are realizing that their true home is heaven and that their earthly residence is just temporary. Peter calls them elect exiles of the dispersion, another event from Israel's history when Jewish people were scattered across the world. And again, Peter spiritualizes it, noting that Christians scattered throughout the world as they are, are living apart from their true home. And this idea of dispersion adds to the meaning of sojourners and aliens and exiles. They are part of a worldwide scattering of Christians. So let me summarize again. Peter is writing to a group of non-Jewish Christians, new converts, many of them, who by virtue of that conversion, by virtue of their experience of new birth, now experience the world 
their ordinary day-to-day life that was so regular and comfortable a minute ago, they now experience it in this way that is uncomfortable and distanced and even frustrating. The world hasn't changed so much as they have changed. They now interact with what used to be ordinary as if they were aliens, as if this is a place that they are not comfortable in. The way they interact with their strange world now is to be defined by the grace and peace of Jesus according to the foreknowledge of God and by the transforming presence of the Holy Spirit. These Christians and their feeling of strangeness comes from being aliens and sojourners, spiritually elect exiles scattered throughout the world. And as we read this letter, which is thousands of years old, it has remarkable insight into our lives in this particular moment. We are in a way that we have never been before. We are scattered. We are isolated from one another, isolated from those we love. And we do this out of love for the most vulnerable and for, out of love for those among us, yes, but it's still a burden to bear. This experience of wilderness in COVID-19 may well have opened our eyes to the reality that these Christians scattered across modern-day Turkey 2,000 years ago were realizing now what they were realizing then, that this world is not our home that we are those who reside as aliens and sojourners and exiles in a very strange place, even if that strange place is our bedroom. Inside of us is a longing, not just return to normal. Inside of us is a longing welling up for our true home. First Peter is an instruction manual of sorts. It is a guide for how to live as aliens in a world that is not our home, in a world that it's first, re- and here's the reality. On the one hand, the, the, the world that, it, that first, this letter's first readers inhabited, that world could not be more different from our own, but the honest truth is that world could not be more similar to our own. The first century was a world marked by plagues and war, violence and civil unrest, radical individualism and unhinged pursuit of pleasure. It was a world in which the government never seemed more powerful, where marriage never seemed so difficult, and suffering and difficulty lay behind every corner. Peter's message then and now is that followers of Jesus have a living hope. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 25, Peter wants us to know that hope is our birthright because we have been born into a new family that gives us identity even in the midst of our wandering. This world is not my home, it's true, but that's true because I belong to another family. So let's look at chapter 1, verses 13 through 25. Peter uh, begins this way. He says, therefore, this is verse 13, therefore preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are learning in these days that this world is not our home. 
that our lives belong to Jesus and that our citizenship is in heaven. And Peter explores the future reality of heaven. He explores the future reality of heaven and the hope that it brings. That's a major theme in verses 3 through 12, which we looked at last week. But 1 Peter, three, that theme... That theme in 1 Peter 3, 1, 3 through 12, is, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that refers to both the coming moment in history when Jesus will appear and bring history to its proper end, but it also refers to the experience you and I would have when we die if that happens before Jesus returns. This hope of the coming revelation of Jesus Christ defines our present reality. But Peter is worried that this future hope might cause his readers, might cause the church to become lazy and disengaged in the present. It turns out that some people are so heavenly minded that they are of very little earthly good. But if that's the case, it's because they have a faulty view of heaven. A faulty view of heaven that causes people to be weirdly over-spiritual or lazy or proud or angry, that faulty view of heaven makes someone of very little earthly good. But Peter says that a person with a clear view of heaven, with a sober mind, they will have a, a mind with sleeves rolled up ready to go to work. People with an accurate vision of heaven are the most earthly good. People with an accurate vision of heaven are the most earthly good because they are the first to seek the good of others. They are the first to take risks, the first to be generous with everything they have. And with clear minds, Peter says, set your hope fully on the future coming of Jesus, just as he explored in verses 3 through 12. Look again at chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Listen, we may be exiles and sojourners and aliens, but we have been born again to a living hope, and the living hope anchors us and pulls us forward through difficulty and suffering. And that phrase, born again, is really important. Listen, of all the words that Peter could have used to describe the inner reality of what happens when you place your faith in Jesus, Peter uses the word born again and he uses it twice in this first chapter. And he does that because Peter wants us to see that we have been born again into a family, which gives us a stronger and deeper identity. It gives us an anchoring in the midst of our alien sojourning exile. Peter wants us to understand our identity as members of God's family, and then, of course, the accompanying realities that may just transform our lives and the lives of those around us. And Peter gets to that in verses 14 through 25, which I just want to read for us right now. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for in sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withered, and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. If you just listened to verses 13 through 25 read, you get caught up in all of the things that Peter tells you to do, the commands. The commands, which we call grammatically imperatives. Our eyes go to the imperatives, and when we do, we miss the indicatives, the statements of reality, the statement of what is objectively true no matter what we do. When we are reading the New Testament, especially when we are reading New Testament letters, it is important to notice both the statements, the indicatives, and the commands, the imperatives. And usually the commands come out of what the statements of reality, the imperative flows from the indicative. Because what we do proceeds from who we are. Identity comes before activity. And it turns out that this section of 1 Peter, in fact, the whole chapter of 1 Peter 1, has a strong theme of being a part of God's family. So if you happen to have your own Bible, uh, go ahead and grab it and have a pen and take notice of all of the ways that this passage talks to us about being a part of God's family. Peter says in verse 3 and in verse 23 that we have been born again. Now, this is one of the ways that the Bible talks about being saved, and it reminds us in particular about how salvation and the way of Jesus are so radical that when we accept Jesus, when we place our trust in him, it is like we are beginning life all over again. So how is it that we are born again? In verse 23, Peter says that we are born of imperishable seed, which is the living and abiding word of God. Words which were preached to us, which is emphasized in verses 25 and verse 12. God's word preached, heard, accepted, received, becomes like a seed that germinates in a mother's womb that leads to life. And in this case, the life isn't biological, it's, it's spiritual. The preaching of God's word has caused us to be born again into a family. So Peter calls us in verse 14, he calls us children who have a heavenly father in verse 17. We have siblings in this family, and I am called to love them with what Peter calls brotherly love in verse 22. And I have a family biologically, and I may have inherited from them some generational sin, some patterns of emotional and relational unhealthiness. So Peter says that 
this new birth has ransomed you from the futile ways of your forefathers. There is a new inheritance. Instead of inheriting futile ways, in verse 4, Peter says that I have an inheritance kept in heaven. And all of this is made real and powerful and effective because the precious, costly blood of Jesus was spilt, verses 19 through 21. And by his resurrection, Jesus has given us a living hope, verse 3. Hope appears twice in this chapter as if Peter wants us to understand that hope is the birthright of the children of God. Hope is the birthright of those who have been born again into God's family. Through the foreknowledge of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, I have been born again. The Apostle Paul in his letters would say that I have been adopted into God's family. Being a part of God's family is one of the greatest gifts that we receive as followers of Jesus. It's how we know deep inside of us that we are loved and chosen, that we belong, but it's where we find support and encouragement in times of difficulty. It's where we find places to celebrate life's sweetest moments. The support and encouragement is exactly what the Christians hearing this letter need. It's exactly what you and I need right now. We need in this time someone to help us bear our burdens. We need in this time someone to come alongside of us and encourage us. That's the blessing of being part of God's family. That's the reality of the identity. But then Jesus, uh, then Peter, not Jesus, talks about the responsibilities that come along with being a part of God's family. It's like he starts by telling us about our identity and the blessing, but then he talks to us about our calling and our responsibility. And, and what that reminds me of is, you know, five years ago when we last went to Hobby Lobby, it feels like, uh, you would see these little signs that say, in this house we, right? And it says like, in this house we laugh, and in this house we forgive each other, and in this house we, it's these cute little family rule signs. And the commands that are woven through these verses are Peter's little version of a Hobby Lobby sign that says, in this family, this is what we do. The commands here in verses 13 through 25 aren't randomly chosen. It's an expression of the rules of the house. It's an expression of what it means to belong to God's family. Uh, And there are at least three responsibilities named uh, in this passage which we're going to cover just briefly, but at their core, they have to do with family likeness and then how we treat other people out of that likeness. So look at verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you must also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. See, a lot of people tell me that Jack looks like me. My son Jack, that he looks like me. I think he does look a lot like me, but his facial expressions are all his mama. In other words, Jack has family likeness. You look at Jack, and you know he belongs to us. 
And that's what Peter is calling for when he says to be holy. In the words of Jesus, be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. It's about family likeness. This family likeness is found when we refuse conformity to the way of life that was before we accepted Jesus or outside the bounds of the way of Jesus as we have been taught. Some of you are new converts to Jesus. You've only recently started following Jesus, and and you can remember what it was like before that time. And, and, And so can these Christians that Peter is speaking to, and Peter says, don't be conformed to that old way of life. Instead, chase after the identity that God has given you. And in verse 17, he goes on to say, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. We conduct ourselves with reverent fear toward God when we remember that our actions have consequences. That our actions have consequences. That's the core of what sin tries to get at to us, or part of the core, is it's trying to convince us that our actions have no consequences. And if our actions have no consequences, I can do whatever I want. But if my actions have consequences, and if those consequences are measured by a father who absolutely loves me, but who is absolutely holy, then I'm going to have in myself a reverential fear in the same way that, listen, I don't want Jack, as he gets older, to be afraid of me. But I do want him to think for a moment before he acts as to how I would feel about what he's doing. I want to have set a culture such that when he goes to do something that we've taught him to be disobedient, he pauses and thinks, what would mom and dad say? I don't want him to be terrified of us, but I want there to be a buffer between what he does and the actual doing of it that comes from our character and what we've laid into him. And that's what Peter's getting at here And one of the things, this is kind of an aside, but I love that Peter links the sin of my past to ignorance. And here's why this is important. There are some in our community who made sinful decisions, who found themselves in sinful places before they met Jesus, before they met Jesus, out of ignorance. Maybe their parents told them it was wrong or they had a sense of what they were doing was wrong, but at the end, it was their ignorance. And what I find in some of you then is a shame and a guilt that comes up from this thing that I did in my past before I knew Jesus. And the enemy, when that happens, it's like the enemy who's called the accuser of the brethren gets you twice. It's like he nudged you into doing it when you were under his rule, and now that you're under the rule of Jesus, he's at least going to make you feel bad about it. And what I would say to you is, Scripture is unpacking this idea that some of the sin of our past just comes out of ignorance, that we didn't know better. And so we repent of sin, uh, we ask, we seek forgiveness from sin, knowing that Jesus has purchased that for us, but we don't carry ourselves in shame and guilt because of this thing that we did that scripture clearly says was out of ignorance. I just felt like that was something somebody would need to hear today. There's family likeness, yes, that that comes from us being like our father in his holiness and being aware of his judgment, but that also speaks to then this piece of how I treat my siblings. This is why family is such a key theme in this text, because of all the ways that Peter could have told us to love one another, he insists on using a specific word which means brotherly or sibling love. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, 
For in sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Let me tell you what this love is is in this verse in 1 Peter 1, chapter 22. It's sincere. Not fake it till you make it, but real. It's sincere. It's authentic. It's earnest. It's intentional. It's not, I'll get to that when I get to that. It's an earnest love that means it. It is love from a pure heart, from a pure motive. I I was really arrested this week by a quote from an early church father that uh, he said, if you're going to correct someone out of anger, you're not actually correcting them in love. You're just trying to get them to do what you want. You're just trying to control them. He said it in fancier, old-timeier words than that. But that's not sincere love. That's not earnest love. That's not love from a pure heart. When I try to get you to do what I want just to make my life less stressful or yes, less stressful. It's not sincere love. It's not earnest. It's not from a pure heart. And Peter says the kind of love that we need right now, the kind of love that we need in the midst of our scattering exile and alienation isn't love that is half-hearted. It's not love that's insincere. And it's certainly not love that I'm just trying to get you to do what I want you to do so that you'll feel better about it. Here's what it actually is. It's love that is sincere and earnest and from a pure heart. And I guarantee you, if you evaluate the love that you're offering others through those three filters, something in you will need corrected. What's interesting about the way that Peter structures this, we're talking a lot about grammar today, we're kind of nerdy, I guess, but grammatically speaking, all of the commands are linked off of, in a participial way, if you're welcome, English teachers, Uh, They're all linked off of the command uh, in verse 13, which is prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds for action and set your hope fully. Those are the main verbs. And everything else defines the way that we set our hope fully and the way that we prepare our minds for action. And, and, And here's what I love about verse 13. In the English standard, it says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Roll up the sleeves of your mind. Be sober minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. The message, the message translation puts it this way. Roll up your sleeves. Put your mind in gear. Growing up, I was told to put my butt in gear. But this says put my mind in gear. Be totally ready to receive the gift that's coming. See, Peter is writing to a people who are realizing that this world is not their home. They are sojourners and resident aliens and exiles, and there's so much frustration to that. There's so much discouragement that comes with that. There's so much weight that comes from that. I've felt that this week in the distance. I felt that this week. I felt that in this hour that we just can't get technology to cooperate with us in the way that we want it to cooperate with us. It reminds me that I'm not from here. It reminds me that our life is a constant series of concessions, hoping for the real, but having to live in the midst of this, this mess. Every day, these Christians that First Peter wrote to woke up, and when their feet hit the floor, because of their nature of being born again, because of their nature of being born again, the world around them was different. And what used to be ordinary had just become a trial and a test. And so it was then and so it is now. We wake up every day in a world where even the most ordinary of activity feels like a trial and a test. And so Peter says, 
set your hope fully. Take hold of your birthright. Set hope, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed. In other words, here's what's fascinating. Hope is not an emotional reality. It is an intellectual one. I set my hope, I set myself fully. I grab hold of my hope, not by waiting until my emotions catch up, but by making the decision to orient my life around the hope that comes from being a part of God's family. I have to make a choice. I have to roll up my sleeves. And the reason I have to roll up my sleeves is that every day of this wilderness wandering, I am faced with hard choice after hard choice after hard choice. If only that that hard choice is, why are there constantly dishes that need to be cleaned? Why is there constantly a task that has been left undone? Why is my head so tired after another day of Zoom calls? Why can't I just make my life easier? I need to choose to set my hope on my birthright, to take hold. I'm not from here. My participation in the way of Jesus means I'm not from here. But the truth of the gospel is such the truth of what Jesus has done in my life is such that even in my alienation and my scattering and my exile and my sojourning, I am part of the family of God. I have a glorious inheritance prepared for me. My birthright is a living hope. And my prayer is that as you love your people with a brotherly love, as you demonstrate family likeness, that you would come further into grasp of your living hope that is your birthright through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much that we uh, are your people. Thank you so much that you are near to us. I pray, God, that you would uh, stir in our hearts an affection for you, an affection for one another, but more than in our hearts, that you would clarify our minds so that we could set our hope fully on what you have come to offer us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.